next and last stop is Atlantic Avenue Barclays Center. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. lot of Nets podcasts. I mean, Oof. the only Net fans you know, the only what, the only Nets fans you know, at least they've got some self-aware. I mean, come on, Look man. Where are these guys? Welcome back to the only Net fans you know podcast. I'm Peter. Charlie is out today. He's going to be back in a little bit. So I had to get us a special guest. Our guest today is a veteran in New York sports media spending almost a decade as a columnist at different places such as CBS and WFAN. He's covered the Jets, Devils, and most importantly, the Nets. His work is probably the most detailed and most comprehensive breakdowns you could find of the Nets out here. Welcome to the show, Steve Lichtenstein. What's going on, Steve? Well, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, yes, I used to be uh, more... Well, well read because I was on a platform like WFAN. Now I write at substack.com. You know, I just do it as a form of therapy because these days Nets fans, they could use some therapy after what they've gone through over the last few years. Where can we find your stuff? I mentioned you have articles that you put out on your substack. Yeah, so I, I did the Nets and then uh, I went through the 21 playoffs. And after that, I just decided to to write on Substack, Steve Lichtenstein at Substack.com. Uh, and uh, I have my Twitter, which is Steve, L-I-C-H-T-E-N-S-T-1. Nets Daily retweets me all the time. So uh, that's that's kind of how I get most of my followers and subscribers. So I always have to plug them. They've been very kind to me over the years. So uh, and it's good to be with you, Peter. I, I just think you have one of the best breakdowns in the league, and uh, I'm happy to kind of go into the weeds with you and figure some stuff out. But the first thing we got to talk about, this offseason, <laughs> wild stuff, new CBA. We have new super teams popping up. We have teams spending million dollars in luxury tax. Some teams trying to do anything to get under these tax aprons. What's your take on this kind of crazy offseason so far that's not done because we're still waiting? We're still waiting on Dame. Maybe we're still waiting for another trade or two. Well, I would, one thing that I had noticed right away was how few players change teams in free agency. There were some, obviously, and obviously there'll be some more trades if Lillard and Harden go through. But um, I think most people are waiting. Uh, I, I think, you know, the Suns are going all in. You have the Warriors who always, uh, you know, are looking to uh, make a move and I think the teams in the East, I don't know how many of them really improved this offseason. Uh, the Nets, obviously, they're not in that league yet either. But I, don't, I think the CBA uh, has really put a lot of teams in a wait-and-see mode. I think for the Nets' purpose, their, their entire uh, point of this exercise was to get under the luxury tax. They don't want to pay repeater taxes anymore. Uh, they'll still be paying them because I think it's three out of four years and the three years prior to this, they've paid them. So I think that was the reason why, you know, they, it wasn't a fax machine, but they gave away Joe Harris for the minimum amount of money. They gave away Patty Mills for nothing, uh, chose not to resign Seth Curry. You know, they're, 
they're under the tax line now. So I think that was the goal. And we'll see how it goes from there. They're going to go back to where they were, uh, you know, before the the big three came. And that's, you know, developing players, uh, getting value out of low draft picks and making tra- making savvy trades. Are you surprised by this is the way that that uh, that this offseason has kind of conspired for the Nets? No, I, I predicted it would be it would. This is exactly what I predicted in one of my columns. I, I laid out. You know, they could go full bore tank, you know, which didn't make any sense. You'd have nobody in the seats. Um, you, you, you know, they don't have their own draft pick in 24, so it made no sense. They could try again, get a star, get Dame Lillard, you know, but that didn't make sense because what are you going to be, a six seed? You're going to pay luxury taxes up the wazoo to, for, for a team that really, you know, would still have a lot of the same issues, tight, rebounding, you know, probably not – you know, an elite team, even with a Lillard, uh, because remember, you'd have to give up some young pieces too to get him, and also you burn all the draft capital on uh, uh, from what you just got in the Durant and Irving trades. So I didn't think that made sense. So I thought the best option was a semi tank, in the sense that you build around Bridges and Johnson, see what you got at the end of the year, and then determine if that's the, when you make your move for the next start, the next wave of stars. It might be 25 for all we know, but I thought this was, this was how they were going to do it. And I'm kind of glad that, well, on one hand, I'm glad that, that they did uh, as a 58 year old Nets fan, you know, who's leaning towards Leon Hess. I want to win now, you know, uh, it, it's kind of disappointing, but it's the right thing to do from a basketball operations perspective. I think a lot of Nets fans are very, very misinformed. In the next three years, I think they only have two first-rounders and only two second-rounders. So really, when you're looking at at their draft picks, it really starts kicking in around 27, that they have three, 29, they have three. If you're going to trade for a superstar, you're going to be pretty much emptying the, the cupboard pretty much on one shot. And... You don't have anything coming up the next couple of years. So maybe they, if there is a superstar in 28 or in 27, you're definitely not going to have a chance to get him then. But I want to ask you this. Is it realistic that the Nets are not going to make any more moves? Maybe like another backup player, but pretty much we're done. What do you think? Well, we they have one open roster slot. They have a two-way slot. They can convert Jalen Wilson to a regular contract to give him 15. Um I personally think that this will be it for them. This is how they're going to go into training camp. They'll keep a little bit of flexibility with that one roster spot, see if they can gain an advantage, maybe uh, take in a contract uh, that doesn't put them over the tax, and then uh, you know, and then maybe get something like another draft pick out of it. But I don't think the, I don't see them involved in the Lillard trade at all. I certainly don't want Tyler Hero here. Um, uh, I think this is the team that you're going to see for the most part. You know, they may, they may make some trades going into the season, but this is the team for 23-24. Uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. Are you nervous with the roster construction? I'm personally very nervous when I look at this roster. There's a couple holes. And like you said, they probably are going to add another player. It would be really wise to add another bench piece. But um, I know you've been very uh, 
very focused on the point guard position. Not a big fan of Spencer Dinwiddie with this team, <laughs> which I'm uh, which I'm actually very against you on that one. But we'll get into that. Okay. But where the holes do you see with the roster? The bigs, you know, they, they they're one of the worst rebounding teams in the league, uh, and part of it is scheme because they have Nick Claxton, who's very good at it, chasing uh, perimeter ball handlers around out outside and leaving guards to rebound. But they don't have that next guy to clean up on the backboards, um, and that's been an issue through through most of Sean Marks's tenure. Uh, is has been rebounding. Um, Again, uh, I, I, you asked, you started the the question with, you know, am I worried? Yeah, this is going to be a bad team. I mean, I don't, you know, I heard on one of your podcasts you thought they could be like a six seven team. No, this is this is a lottery team. They they you, they, I don't see any other way. You, I mean, guys are going to get hurt. I mean, Mikel Bridges has played every game of his career. You know, he could get theoretically hurt. What happens? What happens if Nick Claxton gets hurt? If he's out for like a month with something they could go two and 12 because they don't have a backup center. Um, so yeah, but if right now, I mean, they signed Dennis Smith jr. So I'd say that if they were going to go out and get a 15th guy it should be a center. Yeah. Uh, I've been saying that like about the six, seven seed, if everybody is healthy, maybe they add another piece, but I'm with you. I'm very, I'm very scared. We're like a Mikel Bridges a Cam Johnson injury away from being a, like a bottom five team. I really feel that way. Most of our offense is what maybe produced by those guys, right? Maybe yeah. Dinwiddie also. What if Dinwiddie gets hurt? So Dennis Smith Jr. is the starting point guard, which is fine, right? Theoretically, it's fine. But uh, he can't shoot the three. Is Ben Simmons going to start? So that means you're going to have three guys who can't shoot the three. There's just so many little things. Is Ben the point guard? Is Dinwiddie going to be coming off the bench? If Ben starts, is there enough offense? Is there enough three shooting? I feel like there's a lot of issues with this team, and I hope that Sean Marks can at least make one more move. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not going to put the pressure on the guy because I don't know what I would do with this roster. This certainly feels like a bridge year, like you said. But uh, I, I, I got to say, what, what would you do? What would you do next with this oh, team? I would, I would just ride it out. I mean, I understand. Look, when he, Sean Marks took over, he understood that the lost draft picks were sunk costs. So he he just didn't focus on that part. He said, what do, we, what do we have to do to get better going forward? And what they had to do was draft well, develop players, and get better, uh, you know, on a you know, slower progression. And then eventually they got to that 42-win team in 2019, and that was enough to, you know, make them a, a viable destination for a star. Um, I think that's what they're going to have to do again. It could be a two- to three-year process. Uh, I, I'm leaning towards the two years. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that, you know, some a guy like uh, Derek Whitehead, for example, you know, he he's, you know, still working out his foot surgery rehabilitation. But if he comes back and becomes like Karis Levert, you know, a guy who can handle the ball, shoot the three, uh, you know, make some plays, uh, you know, that'll go a long way towards that progression. Uh, I'm not a fan of Ben Simmons. I don't know how much I, I got a whole list of, uh, issues with him. Um, I don't want to bore you with it. I'm sure you've heard them oh. all. <laughs> you know, look, I call Simmons the original sin of of Sean Marks. You oh. know, if you played it out, you know, and he let he says James Harden, I don't care. You're staying here at the end of the year. You want to leave? That's fine. They would have had Harden, Durant, and Irving for the playoff series. 
They may still have lost to Boston, but if, but in order for Harden to go to Philly, they would have had to really dismantle that team. They would have not only had to get rid of Simmons, they would have had to find a way to get rid of Tobias Harris too. So you're really damaging Philly to just so Harden can get there. And Maury was all about getting him. So he would have done whatever it took. So he would have made Philly worse. You, you know, and you wouldn't have taken in a third, you know, a thirty-four year million dollar guy who before the back injury had a host of issues. Um, you know, people talk about, oh, he doesn't shoot the three, he doesn't shoot free throws. He just can't shoot. I think I have the stat here. He was his last year in Philly, he shot thirty-nine percent outside the restricted area. So unless he was taking a layup, he he, he odds are he wasn't gonna make the shot. So, you know, mid-paint, all that stuff, he was terrible. So uh, he, he's one guy, you know, you hear about the great players that they every offseason they work on one skill. You know, they, have, they work on a move. This is a guy who hasn't gotten better in anything basketball-related since he's come into the league. Can you name one thing that he's, he's become a better player now than when he was a, as a rookie in Philadelphia? I, I have to look at the free throw numbers, but that's the, probably no, the only thing. Like it's not, listen, it's not like it got from you know bad to like average. It went from like very very bad to like bad. Look, I know? mean, it started when they that Showtime did a documentary on him when he was at LSU. Yeah. Whoever greenlit that on Simmons' side did not do him any favors. He came across as an entitled athlete who was just bigger and faster than everybody else in college. You know, deservedly the number one pick. You know, he has you know NBA level athleticism and he can he's a great passer and is terrific in the open court but you know he he didn't he hasn't really worked on his game i mean you could become a decent shooter from the free throw line you know from inside the free throw line on jump hooks uh it he just hasn't it just hasn't happened for him i don't want to i don't know him so i don't want to put anything on him but there's also now obviously there's a mental aspect to his his issues. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to talk about, you know, his personal mental health, but as it affects his basketball, you can tell that every shot from in the mid paint area is falling away from the basket because he doesn't want to get fouled. And you cannot play with that kind of uh, level of lack of confidence uh, in the NBA. Um, you know, there was that pass uh, that famous pass to Matisse Thybul in Game Seven, but what people don't talk about is that that wasn't the only play. He just didn't shoot in fourth quarters in that series. So I, I forgot the number. I I've, I neglected okay. to write it down, but it was very very few fourth quarter field goal attempts and very very few fourth quarter free throws, unless they intentionally fouled him. So there's there's that aspect. So I never understood why the Nets felt that they could take this guy. They they were. They shouldn't have felt any pressure. Philadelphia was the team that wanted him. You know, they could have kept Harden. This this era of player empowerment, they're under contract. So even if Harden, you know, shows up and plays lackadaisical like he did in that game, I think it was against Sacramento for the Nets towards the end, you know, so what? You know, he, he's going to go do that in the playoffs? He's going to do that on the – he might, might do that in a February game against Sacramento, but is he going to do that – in, you know, on TNT and against the Boston Celtics when everybody's watching, you know, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie, Kyrie Irving on the floor with him. I, I don't understand why Marks felt such urgency 
you know, to cave in that situation. If he could have gotten someone else, you know, you know, if he could have gotten Tobias Harris, I would have been probably more okay with it. It's very funny you bring this up because actually just today, a couple hours ago, I saw this. Jake Fisher uh, put out that originally the Nets were going for Tyrese Halliburton in the Harden trade. I don't know how it would have worked out, but originally the Nets were not fond of getting Simmons, that originally it was Tyrese Halliburton. Well, uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that report. I, you know, I'm, who, who's, who's in those conversations? Do we really know? Um, I mean, we ended up getting Sabonis for him. So who would, who, who would Sacramento end up getting off the Nets or off Philly? So, so Halliburton could come to Brooklyn. It, it, you know, I don't know. They they got a really good player in Sabonis. I don't know who who would have measured up so that uh, Halliburton would have come to Brooklyn. How do you feel uh, about Simmons coming back, right? Are you expecting what we saw last year? Or is he going to be bet- maybe a little bit better? I'm not expecting All-Star. I don't know if you've seen from my podcast. I looked up a couple medical journals that said – with the specific injury, basketball players have a player efficiency rating that is way down from their career numbers the first year after the surgery. Career games, uh, not career games, games played that season and the first season after the surgery down. Second year, they go back closer to their career norms. Is that something you're looking at? Or is it, you know what, this is what this guy is, and we got to live well, with it? I look at Simmons the way I looked at Bruce Brown, that he has to be on a specific kind of team to succeed. Like Bruce Brown was perfect for the Denver Nuggets. He, you know, he can screen, cut, you know, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to space the floor because Jokic is out there. The, the middle of the paint is wide open because Jokic is a, you know, a supremely talented center. Joel Embiid is the same way. So Ben Simmons could play, could stand in a dunker spot. He could, he could run a one four, or you know, it, it the the paint isn't clogged when you're used with the Nets. You know, you mentioned before that they just don't have that kind of level of three point shooting, and especially when you're playing Nick Claxton, uh, of the majority of the minutes. You know, it, it it just doesn't work. So I'm not expecting a whole lot from Ben Simmons. You know, he could, you know, it's it's about winning really, and does is he going to impact winning? I have my doubts. I think uh, there are things that he does that would be better served on other teams that have a floor spacing big man, as opposed to Brooklyn, where which has, you know, this could be. I wrote my last piece. This could be the worst three point shooting team since Atkinson's first year, first two years. And they're going to take a ton of threes, and it's not going to. It could be ugly. It, they could have some games where they're like seven for forty two. Mm. So where does Simmons play? Is he the is at the the four and Dunker's role? Is he going to be the point guard? Is he going to be on the bench? What do you think right now? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if he's going to start right away because I think they're going to ease him in. That's just the Nets' way. They they never just rush anybody back unless it's Kevin Durant. You know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving they had their own rules about how they were going to li- whether or not they were going to listen to the performance team. The Nets' performance team is is historically very conservative in the return to play protocols. Uh, I do not see him starting right away. I think, you know, the the position is less important. It's who he guards, right? Do you really want him guarding a big man? Because he's not that effective. He wasn't that effective as a five. You know, he, he doesn't really rebound that well. He doesn't, 
He doesn't really body up that well. He's much more effective, you know, guarding a wing or or even a point guard. I remember I go back to how he guarded the Nets in the 2019 playoffs. He was terrific, you know, guarding D'Angelo Russell, Dinwiddie, Lavert, whoever. You know, he would break through screens, uh, you know, get his long arms to affect the jump shots. Uh, he's much more effective that way. And when he on offense. He's going to handle the ball a lot. I mean, I think that will be helpful to Dinwiddie because uh, we can get into that. He he might be the most inaccurate passer of any point guard in the league. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the missed alley-oops. You know, just if you watch where guys catch the ball, um, it, it, it's a problem. You know, they don't, they don't get into the shooting motion the way they do, like when Chris Paul passes you the ball. You know, he, he gets it right there. For uh, you to set to get into the catch and shoot motion, uh, Simmons is very good at that too. And I think he'll handle the ball a lot when he's on the court, and it might be helpful to Dinwiddie to play off the ball, either catch and shoot or drive a closeout. So going now, going into Dinwiddie, and let you know that I'm coming from a, a biased view, right? I should be unbiased, but I, I can't be. He met my family once, Spencer did, and he was a let me put let me stop you there. He is a great guy. He's a great guy. I mean, he is he's funny, he's intelligent. Um I you know, I, I had problems with Jared Allen too on the basketball court, but uh, you know, the guy that's a guy that can build a computer from scratch, Jared Allen. You know, Dinwiddie Dinwiddie is in that category. This is a, I had another article where I said I like the Nets when they were more unlikable. They used to have guys that, you know, Harden, Irving, some people with Durant, that, you know, they put people off. But that was a great team when they played together. This team is, you know, Bridges, Johnson, Dinwiddie. They're, they're very likable people. They're just not good basketball players, good enough basketball players. Bridges and Johnson are good, obviously, but the team as a collective is not good enough. Uh, 26 games back with the Nets. 16 points, 40% from the field, a disgusting 28% from three, four rebounds, nine assists, and a steal. With Dallas for the two, uh, I guess the year and a half, you could say, 76 games, 60 games started, 17 points, 46% from the field, 40% from three, and uh, 4.9 rebounds, five rebounds. Uh, I, I don't understand the, the, the kind of disconnect when it comes to the three-point shooting. Why, why, why do you think it is? Obviously, I, you know, we also have to it's say shot quality. It's shot quality. When you have Luka Doncic, Doncic handles the ball on almost every possession. And by the way, last year when before you know when Dinwiddie was there, not this year, uh, Brunson was the backup, and Brunson was created a lot uh, for others. And you know when Doncic, you know he sees the double. Guys like Dinwiddie and Finney Smith. Uh, they received a lot of wide open looks. Right now, Dinwiddie is the lead ball handler, and he takes a lot of bad shots. And they don't—they're just not going to go in as efficiently as they did when he was in Dallas. It, it makes a big difference. You know, Mikel Bridges was fantastic scoring the ball, but he didn't even have Kevin Durant's ability to, you know, locate others on double teams and create uh, open looks from from three for guys like Dinwiddie. 13% of his shots in Brooklyn were catch-and-shoot three-pointers, right? Dallas, 22%. Almost a quarter of his shots 
for catch and shoot threes. He shot 42% on catch and shoot threes in Dallas, 33% in Brooklyn. As you said, the Luka Dantich effect, maybe the Brunson effect. But this is where one stat that really is interesting over here. He does pull up threes 28% of the time in Brooklyn, only hits 27%. In Dallas, he did it 25% of the time, but he scored 37% from three. Very interesting numbers. All right. I'll give you a little insight here. He once told me, this was a while ago, that he had a habit about putting the ball down before getting into his shot motion. You know, the one hard bounce go up, that might count as a pull-up in the stats. As opposed to, he may have been as that wide open, but he needs that bounce to get into his shooting motion. So he went, this was probably back in like 2018 or so, where he said that summer he was going to work on just getting into the shooting motion off the catch. So that that I don't I don't know the intricacies of how that stat was computed, but that could possibly be a factor. He he definitely does that still. If you notice, he will take that hard bounce before going into his shooting motion, and that may count as an off the dribble three. That's 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 interesting. If it is, then that, that's very very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, on his wide open shots, which is you know NBA considers four feet of space or more open, forty two percent in Dallas, only thirty four percent in Brooklyn. Luka Doncic effect. Uh, well, again, you have to look at this. You have to look at when it was in the shot clock. You um, you have to look at what he did beforehand. I mean. Uh, there's there, there's some some of it is Doncic, um, but when you're that wide open, he should have hit more. But you know sometimes it's also confidence. You know if you see if you don't see the ball go through, a lot of NBA players are streaky shooters. I mean, analytics guys don't like to believe in it, but it does happen. You know guys get in get on a roll and they can't miss. Some guys like Dinwiddie though they hit one and they think the next one's going in and that's their heat check. Um, I I, can't, I don't have a, a straight answer to this one like I did before, but uh, he definitely should hit more when he's wide open. I don't think he's a 30% three-point shooter at all. I think the numbers are going to go up. I don't know if he's going to still have nine assists, but uh, well, where do you see his numbers this year with this team? It's hard to say because a lot of it will depend on how much uh, Jacques Vaughn wants to lower his minutes because he now has Smith. Wants to give Smith. Uh, someone wrote that Smith came here because they promised him a certain amount of time per game, whether that's 16 minutes or 18 minutes. But most, I, you got to imagine a lot of that is going to come at Dinwiddie's expense, especially considering all the wings the Nets have uh, to play the two-three area. Um, so you know, raw numbers. You, it's hard to really judge players by that because there's a ton of players who get put up big numbers on bad teams. And that that's always uh, something that you want to watch out for. You, you, you know, that's, that's something that could happen with, uh, you know, Bridges, for example, he may average 30, but if the Nets win 32 games, does, does that mean he got better or did just that they required him to, to shoot that much more? If he did it efficiently. Yeah. It means he got, you know, he took the next step. Uh, Dinwiddie, it's all about efficiency as the point guard, as the guy who has the ball in his hands all the time, one pass shot, that's his assist. So, you know, he could get, 
you know, that, that number again, uh, he may get less because Ben Simmons is around and some of those will go to Simmons instead of Dinwiddie. So it, it's very hard to predict raw numbers. How do you feel about the team philosophy offensively, maybe even defensively? We saw last year a team that was pretty much a pickup team, right? These guys did not play together. They just got together the last couple of games of the year. And we're kind of using an offensive philosophy that was made for Kevin Durant's nets, right? So do you think there's going to be a change in the philosophy? Uh, no, I think this is a very analytics-based organization. Uh, Sean Marks uh, runs things. That's why he never picks a coach that has experience or, you know, or, or basically every one of the three coaches he's hired owes their NBA head coaching career to him so that he can maintain control, so he can uh, have a heavy say on staff. Um, I, I, think, I, I think they're going to shoot a lot of threes. I think they're going to be top 10 in three-point attempts per game and bottom 10 in three-point field goal percentage per game. We're going to start wrapping everything up. Do you think the Nets go over or under 37.5 wins? Oh, under. Definitely under, in my view. I mean, something could happen, you know, like I said, if they overachieve, let's say they're uh, 20 and 22, which for them is an overachievement. And there's something available where they can use their one of the trade exceptions and get a player. Yeah, then maybe they can get over. But right now with this roster currently, I'd go under. Lottery bound, but not in the lottery. You know, Houston, they'll have it. But you can't worry about it. Some cost. I agree. All right, let's get your plugs in there. Steve Lichtenstein at Substack.com. A lot of good columns on the Nets, Jets, and Devils, mostly Nets. Uh, Steve, L-I-C-H-T-E-N-S-T-1 for my Twitter handle. That's basically it. You can follow me at NetFansYouKnow. Same thing on YouTube. Fireside Nets with my guy Spence. Every Monday we do a live show. If you're eating lunch right now, enjoy your lunch. If you're coming home, enjoy your commute, whatever you guys are doing. Have a good day. Have a good night. And we'll see you next time. We're out. BK, BK in the playoffs, is it be turned. It be turned. BK be turned when it need to be turned. When it need to be turned, it be turned in there.